0: I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to the latest of our We the People constitutional podcasts. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. And today we discuss the most hotly contested constitutional question of the week, the debate over state laws that guarantee religious rights which has made national headlines in recent days as two of these laws are in limbo after concerns about language in the laws that might authorize discrimination against gay and lesbian people. The governor of Indiana, Mike Pence, and the governor of Arkansas, Asa Hutchinson, have asked lawmakers to reevaluate laws recently passed in their states that added additional language to the federal version of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, that's called RIFRA, and you're going to hear a lot about RIFRA in the next few minutes. Uh, much of this national discussion has focused on politics, but our "We the People" podcast, of course, are only concerned about constitutional and legal issues. And in this podcast, we're going to break down the origins of these RIFRA laws, their history in the Supreme Court, and how the current state laws address or call into question core First Amendment religious and personal rights. Uh, Joining us to talk about this complex debate are two of the leading experts in the country on this matter, and I'm thrilled to say that this podcast is an encore of sorts for an incredible launch that we had last week in Washington, D.C. at the National Press Club for our national series of town hall debates co-sponsored by the Federalist Society and the American Constitution Society. This thrilling national series is going to move across the country to Boston and New York and then to San Francisco and Chicago. And in all of these debates, the two great organizations, the Federalist Society and the American Constitution Society, will bring together debaters with different perspectives so that you, the people, can make up your own mind about what the Constitution means. Um, last week, uh, we were joined by uh, the two guests who graciously agreed to join us today, and I'm going to introduce them now, and then you're going to have the, the treat of, of hearing a discussion between the two of them. Frederick Mark Geddix is Guy Anderson Chair at Brigham Young University Law School. Professor Geddix is widely published on Law and Religion, Constitutional Law and Constitutional Interpretation. His current research is focused on legal issues and problems posed by federal and state religious accommodation statutes, and as I uh, announced last week in Washington, he also uh, filed one of the leading amicus briefs in the Hobby Lobby case. Kevin Walsh is professor at the University of Richmond School of Law. Uh, Professor Walsh's scholarship focuses on doctrines that define the scope of federal power He also clerked for Associate Justice Antonin Scalia of the U.S. Supreme Court. He is on the board of the John Marshall uh, Foundation in Richmond, which is a wonderful organization. And he, too, filed uh, uh, important uh, advice in the Hobby Lobby case. Uh, Welcome, gentlemen, and uh, we're going to get right to it. Uh, Professor Walsh, uh, a lot of the RIFRA debate is wrapped up in the case of the history of religious freedom in front of the court. Can you, as economically as possible... Explain to our listeners what the Federal RIFRA is, what what concern it was meant to address uh, in the Supreme Court, uh, especially regarding the, the the Smith case, and then after the Supreme Court held uh, that uh, the Federal RIFRA does not apply to the states, how these state RIFRA laws differ from the federal version.
1: Sure, the Federal Religious Freedom Restoration Act, or RIFRA, as you mentioned, was a response to this case called Smith. Justice Scalia wrote an opinion for the court in Smith that basically said, we the judiciary are getting out of the business of providing exemptions based on religion for laws that really aren't targeting religion. If they're neutral toward religion, they apply generally, then don't come to us saying that you should get some exemption um, because your, uh, your religion is burdened by that neutral and generally applicable law. That case involved... A, uh, a counselor who was fired from his job for uh, violating a drug policy and also violating drug law by ingesting peyote as part of a Native American religious ritual. And he applied for unemployment benefits and couldn't get them because the reason for firing was violating this criminal law. And he said, well, my religion uh, required me, or I, as part of my religious obligations. As part of my religious observance, I did, in fact, violate this law, but the free exercise of religion protects me from that. And the court said, you know what, the law wasn't targeting your religion, so tough luck. And so they took themselves out of the business of looking for religion-based exemptions. And Congress responded to this, which had been a, a cutback from what the courts had been doing. And what the Congress tried to do was reinstate the standard of review for government actions that substantially burden the exercise of religion so the standard of review that went into the rifra said this if the government is substantially burdening the exercise of your religion okay and you can show that that's what they're doing then they have to say uh, why they have a compelling interest in doing that and why forcing you to violate your religion or do something inconsistent with your religion really is necessary to accomplish what they're trying to accomplish. So the core of federal RIFRA is a standard of review for actions that burden religion. So when that burden comes in and they called it, it had to be a substantial burden, then uh, the government's got to uh, do some explaining about why they have to be uh, doing that. So that's, that's all pretty abstract, but uh, at, at its core, it's a general standard of review that's triggered when you have substantial burdens on the exercise of religion. So the thing about federal RIFRA, because of some constitutional rulings that, that we won't go into about the scope of federal power, it turns out that federal RIFRA only protected people against federal government actions that burden the exercise of religion. So some states decided that they would pass state RIFRAS that Included basically the same standard of judicial review, but this time providing protection against state laws instead of federal laws. Now, these differ in some, in some ways. For example, who can claim the protection uh, may differ in some states or whether they include the word substantial in front of burden. And each state will have some case law interpreting this general standard. So it's really hard to generalize about differences in state law. The, the thing that it unites all of them, though, is they have basically the same standard of review that's triggered by government actions that burden or substantially burden religion.
0: Great. Thank you so much, Professor Walsh, for that excellent summary. Professor Geddix, anything you'd like to add to that history? And then really, let's focus on those state laws and the differences with the federal laws. Uh, Two differences in the current controversies are that the Arkansas and Indiana laws seem to apply to uh, corporate uh, personhood um, and all corporations, not just closely held uh, corporations, and also that they allow for private uh, party lawsuits, in other words, for people to raise lawsuits of private discrimination, not just state discrimination, but uh, to help us understand those, those two important differences?
2: Well, I think uh, Professor Walsh has given an excellent summary. I think I would add only two things. Uh, first of all, in a sense, there's really two federal RFRAs. Uh, there's the RIFRA that was enacted in 1993, where the widespread understanding was that it was simply reinstating the standard of review as it had been applied in previous federal cases. And in those cases, it had functioned as a a modest, uh, even-handed balancing test. Whereas uh, now we have the federal RIFRA after it's been interpreted by the Supreme Court in the Hobby Lobby case, in which it is much more muscular, we can say, Uh, It applies to for-profit corporations, for-profit businesses. uh, The number of, uh, or or the breadth of claimants is much broader. And the standard of review now is treated as genuinely strict scrutiny, the same same kind of very difficult to satisfy standard that is applied under the due process and equal protection clauses. And so I think there's actually a, a disconnect uh, in public discourse and a lot of academic discourse when states, uh, as Indiana's governor did, when states simply say, all we're doing is what was done in federal RIFRA. And it's actually quite uh, a point of contention now what actually was done with federal RIFRA and whether uh, the law as it exists now is really what Congress intended to do in 1993.
0: Uh, great, thanks so much for that. Um, P- Professor Walsh, let us uh, zero in on these on these state Uh, RFRAs. uh As I mentioned, uh, uh, two of these laws seem to uh, allow uh, all uh, corporations, not just closely held corporations, to sue, uh, and they also allow uh, people to bring uh, claims for exemptions against private discrimination, not just government discrimination. And the objection is that this would allow businesses to claim exemptions from laws prohibiting uh, prohibiting discrimination against gay people. Is that an accurate description of these two exemptions? Help us understand them better. And in your view, do the laws as drafted, in fact, allow for exemptions against anti-gay discrimination laws?
1: Sure. Well, let me start with the, uh, the, the, the two differences that you've identified. I think, first, it's hard to get a handle sometimes on these laws because they're changing, right? We're, we're, we're talking uh, at a time when the uh, Indiana legislature is considering some changes and uh, the Arkansas is considering a different version from the one that was first sent to the governor. And so we have a bit of a moving target on some of these. But uh, let me talk about two of them. So the Arkansas law, I believe as it exists now, essentially is, word for word, the federal law uh, where it it has state instead of federal and then it has something different about prisons that the federal law doesn't have. But in terms of the coverage, it doesn't specify corporations uh, the same way that, say, the uh, Indiana law did. And so um, if we look at the Indiana law, where most of the discussion has been at, I think the difference as to who is protected is really just one of textual specificity, not actual differences in legal coverage. Because what the court in Hobby Lobby said about the federal RIFRA is that this other federal statute called the Dictionary Act defines person to, as a matter of federal law, to include corporations, partnerships, so on and so forth, unless context indicates otherwise. And they said, at least with respect to closely held corporations, which is what they were dealing with in that case, context does not include Otherwise, and so uh, there has yet to be a Supreme Court decision or other governing federal appellate decision that would narrow the scope of who can assert a RIFRA claim. And so, all the Indiana law did was uh, make that explicit. It's I, I, I think in legal substance, it really is the same once you include the Dictionary Act. On the on the second issue of application in private parties, this is something that the Federal statute does not, again, explicitly say, and federal circuit courts have been split on that issue. So in some, in some federal jurisdictions, the federal RIFRA does apply in suits regardless of whether the government is a party, and, uh, and in other federal jurisdictions it doesn't. So here's how, that, here's how that comes up. I mean, when you have, say, an anti-discrimination claim that's brought – some jurisdictions, you go in, or under some laws, you go to a government agency and say, I've been discriminated against, and then the agency takes action for you. And under some other schemes, the, the agency gives you permission to sue. But in either case, you're going to have the uh, the defendants going to be the same person, and their reason for doing what they did is going to be the same. And so the the federal courts that have said, the rifRA applies in suits regardless of whether the government is the party uh, they They sort of said it doesn't matter to the religious believer right who is the the messenger or who is bearing the burden uh directly onto them in court so i I would say it's not quite accurate to to say that they differed in legal substance at least in some jurisdictions as to uh well let me stop there. And uh, see if Professor Geddix has anything or you have anything um, before we before we go on since it 's been lengthy already
0: great, thank you for your uh, your restraints <laughs> as well as your, your your helpful answer so Professor Geddix, as I hear Professor Walsh, he says, yes, these state referas do allow for corporations to claim exemptions from private discriminations, and therefore a corporation could claim that it 's exempt from laws prohibiting discrimination against gays even when that discrimination is by private parties. And he says that some interpretations of the federal reform might also allow for that kind of exemption but that the lower courts are split on that. Is, do you agree with that? And basically, I just want to boi- hone in on this central question our listeners are going to be asking about do, do the Indiana and Arkansas laws allow for corporations to say that they don't have to obey anti-gay discrimination laws?
2: They certainly allow for that argument to be made. Um, Bloomington and Indianapolis, for example, have local anti-discrimination ordinances that protect uh, against racial and gender discrimination as well as LGBT uh, discrimination. So these laws permit uh, a private employer to assert that as a matter of religion, the employer uh, is required to discriminate uh, against racial minorities or women or uh, persons with a same-sex orientation. And in order to enforce the ordinance, the city would have to prove, number one, that elimination of anti-discrimination is a compelling interest. They could probably prove that. Uh, But then they would have to prove that application of the ordinance to the employer that there is no less restrictive means of preventing anti-discrimination than doing this. And even the most powerful anti-discrimination laws in the United States, such as Title II and Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, have lots of exemptions, and it would be challenging uh, for the government to insist that it could not exempt these employers given that there are other exemptions in these other important laws. So I, I think that is uh, that is the crucial issue in these decisions is how they apply to existing and future anti-discrimination laws.
0: Uh, Professor Walsh, how do you think the Indiana law would apply? Professor Geddix has said that uh, there might be a compelling interest in eliminating anti-gay discrimination, but there would also be less restrictive Means and obviously this controversy has arisen because of the rise of uh, court decisions recognizing same sex marriage and the p- well publicized cases in which small business owners have been cited for uh, violating these anti-discrimination laws like the the wedding photographer who didn't want to photograph a a gay wedding so do, do, do you uh, uh, agree or disagree with Professor Get- Professor Gettix that a, a fair reading of these Indiana and Arkansas laws is that the wedding photographer and other uh, small businesses might, in fact, be able to claim uh, an exemption.
1: Well, I do think you need to focus on the particular substantial burden that's being claimed. So in the wedding photographer case that you mentioned, when the substantial burden is the idea of participating in the celebration of someone else's wedding and, and the... Uh, photographer says, I'm not going to contribute my talents to that. My religion doesn't let me send that message uh, to create this story about the wedding. Uh, I I do think that they would have a strong claim under a Religious Freedom Restoration Act that applied. The truth is, though, they also have a strong claim under the First Amendment for uh, compelled speech. So I'm not sure at the end of the day that the outcome would be different in a wedding photographer. Case. I think what's more troubling in terms of the way that this issue has been discussed is that most of the types of discrimination that people are talking about when they talk about new discrimination being permitted under these laws is, are, are really circumstances that are not happening you don't have people denying service at restaurants on the basis of sexual orientation and things like that. So I think a lot of the subjects that are being discussed are really irrelevant. It is very relevant to something like the services of a wedding photographer, for sure. And I do think that this would provide uh, a defense. But then again, in Indiana, for example, you would only have a claim in a couple of cities to begin with, right? Uh, The the bigger question is, in the state generally, the wedding photographer wouldn't be sued or couldn't be sued. And so, again, there's not much of a change in the status quo uh, under the law, especially when we consider the absence of statewide sexual orientation discrimination legislation, as well as the presence of First Amendment protections against compelled speech.
0: Uh, Professor Professor Walsh notes that basically uh, Indiana and Arkansas don't have statewide anti-discrimination or public accommodation laws right now, so there's already no requirement for wedding photographers or, or bakeries or florists to treat everyone equally, although some cities like Indianapolis do have that requirement. Do you agree with Professor Walsh that for that reason it's not a big deal that these laws might apply to a wedding photographer in Annapolis but not sweep more broadly? Or do you agree with uh, critics like an excellent explainer in the Washington Post called 10 Things You Really Need to Know About uh, to Understand the in Indiana and Arkansas, which gives the following example. Claimants can include the Amish who object to building codes or New Testament literalists who refuse to allow their children to wear school identification badges containing RFID chips or conservative Christian pharmacists who refuse to comply with prescription laws or orthodox Jews who resist subpoenas on Yom Kippur, basically a version of Justice Ginsburg's warnings in her Hobby Lobby dissent that these sort of exemptions could sweep broadly. Uh, so who, do, who, who do you who do you think is right, uh, Professor Walsh or Justice Ginsburg? Uh,
2: I think Justice Ginsburg is. These laws, well, w- whenever I hear people saying, don't worry Uh, these things are very unlikely to happen. I mean, it's sort of like giving someone a loaded gun and giving them the right to point it at you and saying, but don't worry, they're never going to pull the trigger. Um, Hobby Lobby actually belies all of that. Uh, The claim in Hobby Lobby by a for-profit corporation was unprecedented. Uh, I don't think anyone anticipated that. No, that's too strong, but... uh, uh, the Supreme Court in Hobby Lobby was unable to cite uh, uh, really any meaningful precedent in support of a for-profit corporation bringing a religious exercise claim, and yet they found that Hobby Lobby, even as a for-profit corporation, uh, was protected. So I think what's really happening here is um, is uh, our defensive efforts by social conservatives, they suspect, as many people widely do, that the Supreme Court is going to recognize a constitutional right to same-sex marriage. They're trying to prepare the ground to uh, uh, to minimize the effect of that right on um, to minimize the effect of that right on society, on their individual state societies. And the the real difficulty with these laws is they are not, for example, like the Utah law, which is targeted at particular areas and carefully balances religious liberty uh, with um, civil rights. They're open-ended, and one can't really predict either what claims will be brought or how the courts will balance them. Uh, Although, since we have genuinely strict scrutiny now, I think the only – reasonable way to predict it is that most people are going to win these claims once they're brought because strict scrutiny is very hard for the government to satisfy.
0: Professor Walsh, uh, I don't want to rehearse our excellent Hobby Lobby debate from last week, although I do encourage all listeners to check out the phenomenal uh, video and audio of it. But I do want to ask you, what kind of religious exemption claims do you think should succeed under laws like the Indiana, Indiana and Arkansas laws? Uh, in addition to wedding photographers, what other small businesses or large businesses do you think should be able to legitimately claim exemptions from anti-discrimination laws?
1: Well, I, I would say that the difficulty of identifying uh, particular types of claims is a really good reason to have a general standard, right? So, that precisely, you know, when when Congress passed the RIFRA in 1993, they could not have foreseen the election of President Obama and the imposition of the health care mandate, even on religious nonprofits, right? And so, it, it, we wouldn't hold them to, to to seeing the future. Instead, the the debate should be and and has been, up until now, not about a particular class of of claimants or a particular type of laws that this would uh, be applied in connection with. Instead, it was about what is the right standard that we as a society should take to government burdens on religion. And this is why I have to disagree with the description of this law or any of these religious freedom laws as a loaded gun. Because these are defensive laws. In order for the RIFRA to apply, you have to have government burdening religion. You have to have the government doing something or requiring a religious believer to do something. And it's at that point that the protections of RIFRA come in. So describing it as a weapon, I think, is, is not accurate with respect to how it operates. Instead, we should be asking, What should the government force, government coercion, be used for when people are being obligated to do something that violates their religion? And so I can't name a whole – I can't name every single case that it would apply to, but I would defend the standard as a good standard, one that has stood the test of time and that we shouldn't be making – Different exceptions to that good standard, because we don't like the outcomes when they conflict with um, particular other political commitments that we have. Religion is a civil right, uh, as well as um, not being discriminated against, and, and other things.
0: Uh, Professor Gedick, when when RIFRA was passed, it was enthusiastically embraced by liberals and conservatives who talked about the importance of religious exemptions. Are there any circumstances in which you think under state RIFRA's Uh, small businesses or sole proprietors should be able to claim exemptions from anti-gay discrimination laws? And do you think that courts and ultimately the Supreme Court would treat discrimination against gays and lesbians differently than they treated racial discrimination, where they held in the Bob Jones case that avoiding uh, racial discrimination was a compelling governmental interest?
2: I think as a general matter, uh, small businesses or businesses generally Well, let me me restate that. I think as a general matter, believers should be accommodated when the government imposes burdens on their religious exercise, so long as significant costs are not imposed on third parties. That is, individuals who believe or practice differently or don't believe at all, and thus who receive no benefit from the accommodated religion. I think it is a fundamental, or ought to be a fundamental, bedrock principle in the United States that no one should have to pay the costs of exercising someone else's religion. That's enshrined in the Establishment Clause, and uh, it's, it's simply an important principle of political morality, especially in the United States where uh, we have such uh, religious and um, ideological diversity. So I think that these statutes are appropriate when they're used as shields Um, against government oppression or burdens, as Professor Walsh described them. But when they're used to permit private individuals to impose significant costs on others, then they're not being used as shields against the government. They're being used as swords, as weapons uh, against other individuals. And so I think the weapon analogy uh, is entirely appropriate here.
0: Professor Walsh, uh, tell us about the bills that – the amendments to the uh, Indiana and Arkansas laws that would appear to prevent exemptions from anti-gay discrimination laws. What do they look like and uh, do you think they're a good idea?
1: Well, the Arkansas law, as I understand it, as we're speaking right now, the um, proposed Arkansas law mirrors the federal law. And I think the federal law is a good law, and so uh, I think that the Arkansas law is a good law uh, that that mirrors it. The Indiana law, the part that they added says that nothing in this law shall be used to provide a defense in a civil action or a criminal prosecution essentially for violating public accommodations laws with respect to uh, a whole range of uh, protected characteristics: race, religion, sex, sexual orientation, uh, and others. And there, I think the carve-out was unnecessary, in as much as the standard already incorporated in the RIFRA has a compelling interest and the least restrictive means component. I think that is a a good. Uh, standard, I think having a carve out suggests that the exercise of religion is not a civil right and is not entitled to the same protection uh, as as other things and so i I think the standard that was there was a good one, that said, for the kinds of claims that people were essentially fear mongering about in terms of denial of service at restaurants and things like that, those were no one was using the RIFRA or seeking to use a RIFRA for that anyhow. So to the extent that those RIFRA doesn't apply there, I'd say there's, there's no difference. But the principle of saying that we're going to depart from the compelling interest, least restrictive mean standard, that's not one that I thought was a good idea. I think the wedding photographer uh, should win. At the same time, the First Amendment still protects that wedding photographer. And so... I'm not sure that it matters for that particular person. I do think the whole episode, though, of mischaracterizing what the law does, then cutting it back in different ways and sort of the whole back and forth has been very corrosive in terms of allowing people to negotiate and to to give uh, and uh, treat each other in good faith. I think that this episode has been really damaging.
0: Uh, Do you agree, Professor Geddix, that this has been a damaging episode? And if the Arkansas law adopted uh, uh, Professor Walsh's uh, suggestion that basically the state laws mirror the federal RIFRA, do you expect to continue to see these uh, claims uh, to be brought? I said I didn't want to rehearse the Hobby Lobby debate, but you did argue there that you thought even according to Hobby Lobby, under federal law, uh, people could make claims for exemptions from anti-discrimination Uh, laws protecting gays. Do you expect these claims to continue?
2: Yes, I do. Uh, And I don't think it's fear-mongering at all. Uh, The majority in Hobby Lobby uh, only suggested that racial discrimination, preventing racial discrimination, is a compelling uh, interest They did not mention uh, gender discrimination, and of course they did not mention LGBT discrimination, and I'm certain that it's not because they didn't think of it. Uh, I think that was a a measured uh, concession in the majority opinion, that the majority was not certain that preventing gender discrimination or LGBT discrimination would constitute a compelling government interest, otherwise it would have been Uh, it would have been quite easy for them to add those two kinds of discrimination to racial discrimination. Uh, You know, in one sense, I I wish we weren't always talking about wedding services. They're not unimportant uh, on both sides. I mean, being denied a service on the basis of your sexual orientation Uh, imposes a dignitary harm as well as a denial of service. And yet I understand and sympathize to some extent with the photographer or the caterer uh, or the florist who is servicing a wedding that they find uh, deeply wrong according to their beliefs. But weddings are occasional uh, situations. You know, even someone with especially bad matrimonial luck is not going to be married more than three or four times in their entire lives. Uh, I think we need to be focused on other issues. Uh, One, I think, on on which social conservatives have given the LGBT community um, no comfort would be something like uh, an employer who wishes, who refuses to cover, uh, to give spousal or dependent coverage. To an LGBT couple, one of whom is employed uh, at that company, because he or she uh, 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 believes that they can't be complicit in uh, an unholy union or a, uh, a marriage and a family unit that contravenes their beliefs. Now, you know, that's something that happens every day. That's something that goes right into the heart of the well-being of every American family is whether they can receive health insurance from their employer, whether they will be treated differently every day than their co-employees. And, and these laws give no comfort. There is nothing in these laws to suggest that, of course, that would be a compelling interest that couldn't be implemented in any less restrictive manner.
0: Professor Walsh, what's your response to that possibility Professor Geddick says that uh, both under the state refer and I think if I understand them under hobby lobby as well a, a gay individual might be denied uh, a, 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 a spousal or uh, benefits uh, insurance coverage uh, by a religiously objecting employer uh, do you agree with that
1: well i'm I'm not familiar with the case the cases applying that but generally speaking these are a matter of contract. And there's, uh, if we're talking about benefits and getting money to different people and getting insurance coverage, uh, I do think that there are other ways uh, to accomplish that, and that there are serious questions that come when we use the force of government uh, to have people violate their religion.
0: Um, Professor Getix, uh how will if the Supreme Court recognizes marriage as a fundamental right or, or holds that same-sex couples have? a constitutional right to marry, will that uh, exacerbate the uh, claims for exemptions and tell us about the kind of claims you expect to be brought and whether or not you think they'll succeed? Well,
2: I, I think it it will certainly raise the stakes. Uh, at this point, we're talking – when we talk about LGP discrimination – we're talking about a kind of discrimination that has been uh recognized in a series of federal cases but is um is not prohibited by uh a general federal statute is not prohibited in uh most states uh the idea that you'd be able to prohibit someone, that you'd be able to discriminate against someone because of their sexual orientation would easily bleed over to discriminating against them because of their marital status, that is, their same-sex marital status. And so uh, it will become more difficult, I think, uh, on a constitutional uh, basis. To exercise that kind of discrimination, and yet for all the reasons that we've been talking about, people will be more motivated than ever to uh, exercise that kind of discrimination in order to insulate themselves from the kinds of marriages that they believe uh, violate their religious beliefs and teachings.
0: All right, gentlemen, thank you for for, for another superb debate. It's time for closing arguments. Uh, Professor Walsh, please tell us what is at stake in the debate over the Indiana and Arkansas laws. Uh, Do they authorize religiously observant individuals and corporations to seek exemptions from anti-gay discrimination laws? And and is that a good thing or a bad thing?
1: Well, I think what's at stake is what standard we're going to use for uh, figuring out when and under what circumstances the government should substantially burden the exercise of religion, and what sorts of defenses that religious believers can have as a matter of law when someone else is using the law against them. Uh, In terms of the anti-discrimination laws, again, we have not seen religious believers making the claim of substantial burden on the exercise of religion for the vast majority of... Things that people are saying they will, and these laws have been on the books in uh, juris- other jurisdictions for uh, t- over 20 years now. And so I think what is at stake it, right now are the wedding issues that uh, Professor Geddix uh, mentioned. That's, uh, that, that is at stake. At the same time, that's sort of been dealt with in other states by the states in their legislative process when they change their own marriage laws. The reason that the sides are so far apart in this particular issue is because the judicial process has sort of hopscotched over the legislative process. And so uh, you don't have people uh, coming together because instead they're reacting to an unknown uh, potential constitutional decision. So I think what's at stake is also how we talk to each other and what we say about the other side and what we uh, how we treat each other and I I think that this has not been uh, a a very good uh, example and is not a very promising uh way of going about things. Uh that said I think your organization is doing a good job at trying to keep it focused on uh, legal issues, and I appreciate the chance uh, to speak with you and Professor Geddix about this.
0: Thanks very much uh, for those uh, kind words and your el- eloquent closing thoughts. Professor Geddix, your closing thoughts about what is at stake in the d- legal dispute over the Indiana and Arkansas referral laws.
2: Uh, let me start where Professor Walsh ended up because I, I strongly agree with him on that. Uh, I think arguments I think it was very unfortunate, frankly, in the Windsor case that that was decided on the basis of anti-gay animus, uh, anti-gay hatred uh, ascribing that motivation to uh, aspects of DOMA. Uh, I think I think it's always better for legislators and others to compromise over these issues. And uh, in order to compromise, both sides have to believe that the others are acting in good faith. And certainly as a believer myself, as someone who has uh, lots of social uh, conservative, socially conservative, Christian conservative neighbors, this is not about hating gays and lesbians. It's about how to live their lives with integrity. Uh, in uh, a public uh, life that is becoming increasingly pluralistic. It's not helpful to ascribe bad motives uh, to people in order to solve that problem. But the problem remains, and I think the difficulty is, I think what is at stake is really what constitutes a defensive move and what constitutes an offensive move. Uh, when for-profit businesses which have been quintessential which have been thought to be the quintessential example of businesses operating in public life are permitted exemptions from generally applicable laws that apply to everybody else, then religious liberty is not being used defensively, or at least it's being used offensively as much as defensively. Those individuals are then imposing those values on employees, on customers, on all others with whom they come in contact in an important dimension of public life. And uh, that can't be the solution to uh, the conflicts between religious liberty and all liberty in this area.
0: Thank you so much, uh, Frederick uh, Geddix and Kevin Walsh, for an unusually civil, thoughtful, and nuanced debate on our most hotly contested uh, legal issue of the moment. I'm so pleased that we had this great follow-up to the incredible launch of our National Town Hall series that I'm going to plug once more in urging our listeners to uh, check it out. Um, It's an honor to host you both, and we look forward to having you both back again soon. Please listen to the next of our We the People constitutional podcasts. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.